Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 299 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Oren Davis about attracting and hiring with diversity in mind. Today's podcast is brought to you by QuickBooks Online, Text Expander, Back Office Betty's, and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So today, I know we want to talk about something we've started doing on the Lawyerist team. You know, we've shared on the podcast before that we get together for lunch once a week on Thursday afternoons. We call it Taco Thursdays. Tacos are not mandatory. Um, Some people eat, some people don't. But we've started kind of rotating our different topics. And one of the ones we do once a month now are lunch and learn. So can you tell us a little bit about how we structure those? Yeah, I love this because it's super not really that structured. (laughs) (laughs) And as a reminder, we're a remote team. So we're just getting together, uh, you know, on a video call and sharing this time. But what we do uh, once a month is everyone gets to bring something to the group and and teach. It's someone said last week, this is kind of like show and tell for a lawyerist. (laughs) So it started, I think the first month we did it and a lot of people had tech tips and everybody was like, Oh, I I learned this new tech tool. Or did you know you could automate your email to do this? And, and that was fun. But honestly, it's really evolved into bring knowledge you can share with the team. And so sometimes people bring like their favorite recipe that they're cooking that week. Or, I mean, last week I learned a new tip of how to unclog your garbage disposal if something gets stuck in there. So I was like, (laughs) hey guys, did you know how to do this? Which sounds funny and is really random, but I love it because you get to know people differently and you get to learn really cool, interesting things. Yeah, I love it too that it is very unstructured and it's kind of like, anything goes within those topics. So people can get creative. We just kind of give everyone a heads up. Hey, we're going to do a lunch and learn, bring some kind of a tip or something you want to share. And I thought it was really cool. Last week, we learned from Kelly on video how to pose for pictures so that you look as good as possible. And she went through kind of like, you know, she stood up on her video and went through like, okay, and here's how you place your elbow. And this is the shape that you want to create on the side of your body. And here's how you make sure you tuck your chin the right way. And so then it was funny because all of us were trying to do that as Kelly's teaching us how to do it. So I love that you do get to see a little bit of everyone's personality and you also walk away with things. So it's a good opportunity to just like take away some of that pressure and also make that distinction between this is not a work meeting where we're talking through projects and getting status on things. It's really there for a totally different purpose. And I think sometimes that can be hard to do as a remote team. Like, where do you draw that line between, hi, we're meeting again, and today we have to talk about this project that's due in two days versus an hour from now we're meeting, and it's just meant to be like fun and community building. So things like this are a good way to break that up. I mean, I'm super proud of the team culture that we've been able to create with a remote team. And in this year in particular, 
because of the pandemic, we have not actually met in person. Like you and I have actually never met in person, right. which is <laughs> so crazy for me to think about it. I mean, we were scheduled. We were like days away from being in person so when, when the <laughs> pandemic struck. Yes, we still have credits for the flight we were supposed to be on. <laughs> but I feel like I know you as well as I've known any team member that I've, you know, worked next door for years in an office, right? Like we do know our team members and we care about each other and we genuinely like each other and have a great time together. But it's because we're very intentional about how we get together and hang out on these video calls. And one day we will meet everybody in person, I promise. And I'll be super excited to see how tall you are. I know that always catches people off guard. I I have met some members of the team and I met Aaron on day one. And I think both he and Sam were like, whoa, you're really tall. And I was like, yeah, I guess you guys would have no other way of knowing that until we met in person. But I love this idea of like having these differentiated times. Another way we kind of do that is with our Slack channels. And Jason Freed talked about this a little bit in his episode on remote work as well. He talked about like they have a separate base camp project where people can go to chat about what's going on in the world or just kind of, you know, have chat that's outside of designated work channels. And we do that too with our water cooler channel on Slack so that people feel like Yes, you can share things. You can ask for, I know I've asked for recommendations from Aaron, like, hey, what's the best hiking, you know, within two hours of the Twin Cities area and people are sharing things that are going on. Lots of people buying and selling houses and celebrating that kind of stuff. And so have that designated space so that you don't feel like it's cluttering up work meetings, but it really helps people feel like they're part of a community, right? And we've just onboarded some new team members. So it's really nice for them too, to feel like there is a space for some more of that team building, that community, that kind of personal, you know, adult show and tell and sharing type thing. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Maybe we should even just do that one day. We should just have show and tell. (laughs) I think that would be a lot of fun. (laughs) think we should do it. In case anyone else is wondering, we've done scavenger hunts where we've had to run through our houses and find things. I mean, we've done all kinds of really fun things. So just be creative. And also, if you're sitting here listening to this thinking, that is not me, (laughs) then see if somebody else on your team, like, to be fair, Paige is the person on our team that comes up with most of these things. So, yeah. so we're just sounding like we're taking total credit for it. We're, I mean, we don't mean to. We're oh, just no way. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. So you don't have to be the ones to think of it. Like ask your team members to come up with some stuff or to think through fun things. I mean, we've done we've done all kinds of things from played games to just had topics or sometimes she just quizzes us and she'll come and have everyone come prepared to answer questions about their life goals or where they grew up or just anything interesting, but we really do get to know each other in a, in a different way. So, yeah. And it kind of replaces those conversations that you would naturally have when you're in an office and you're taking a break or you're heating up your lunch in the kitchen. And so make sure that there's a way to facilitate that when it's remote so that people can feel that sense of culture and feel excited about being part of the team. I know I've picked up a lot of little clues about people's personality and even things that do come back over into their working style by attending these sort of more community building events and just sort of getting to know people. It really makes them feel like they're a part of something bigger too. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Linda Artisani from QuickBooks Online and then my conversation with Oren. 
Hi, my name is Linda Artisani, and my business is Artisani Bookkeeping. I work closely with Intuit, the maker of QuickBooks Online Advanced. And also, I work with Lean Law, which is a time and billing software for attorneys. When you pair QuickBooks Online Advanced with Lean Law, you now have a legal-specific accounting solution. So you work with many attorneys. What is their typical most significant pain point? I would say managing accounts receivable. Many times in our initial conversation, I find that attorneys really struggle with that. They might be in a redundant workflow where they're using a desktop application to build their clients. They have no clue sometimes what is owed to them or who owes them. And sometimes even worse, they're actually typing it in a Word document, the invoice, and then they're tracking it in a spreadsheet. So it's a lot of manual entry. I think if you can add uh, Lean Law, which is a very professional invoice application that gets pushed into QuickBooks Online, that's when your technology really kicks in. QuickBooks has an automated process to really send the invoice out, and it's all, all the features are baked right inside the product. Imagine if you create an invoice that's due in like 15 days. The invoice is mailed out and emailed out, and then the payment link is on it. And the attorney's client clicks to initiate the payment and the payment and the deposit record automatically in the software without anybody even having to touch it. QuickBooks Online Advances also has a feature called workflows. Let's say the invoice is due in 15 days and the attorney sends it out and on the 15th day, they're not paid. What happens is the system, once you've set it up and put in exactly what you want it to say and the parameters around it, maybe client type or something like that, it will send the invoice out automatically a reminder to remind them that it's due. And a lot of times people forget the invoice is inside an email and the email can get missed or it's stacked. And then if it's not paid on the 15th day or the due date, you can send out another email as many days as you think works right for your client base. And then the system will send it out again, reminding them that now it's overdue and you can create stronger language there, but it will really, it's all automated. So no staff person has to set this up. It's just, no one's looking at it every month and deciding, you know, that these are gone, these are late and sending it out. It just happens automatically, which is really one of the features that is a strong point of having a software that will help you do that. I love that. The more you can automate things, the more time you're saving of your own and also that of your team. And it's easy to think that's not a big deal, but it eats up minutes and seconds here and there. And that can be really problematic. And saving time is always something that's smart. What other kinds of issues do you see lawyers struggling with? I would say the biggest one is attorneys really struggle with having real-time data. If you're doing like those manual processes, now the data is it's slower, it's manual. So they're behind the eight ball. They're way behind what is actually happening in their world, in their accounting. So if they're doing their books late at night and they're not having the time to do it, they're, they're busy people. I'm sure you've run into a lawyer or two that's doing their accounting at 1030 at night. So I'll use the same scenario. They're tracking it all manually. They're typing the invoice into Word doc or something else. And then it's inside of a spreadsheet that they're tracking it, it becomes really unruly and unmanageable. They start out with just doing it that way. And the next thing you know, it's out of control because they're gaining a bigger client base and they're losing track of who's made the payments, when the payments are there. It's just really hard to track. With QuickBooks Online Advanced, we're able to track cash flow. We're able to track all those things automatically. The payment link goes out. It's 
paid by the client and inside the program, it's actually paid by the client and the payment and the deposit are entered without any human hands touching it. It all happens, I like to call it automatically. So when that is tracked, now you don't have anybody tracking that as well. And then I'm also able to track data points, key data points inside of the platform. Whether it's lean loss side, the client side, we're able to track the detail and we get incredible reporting like revenue by attorney report or the ready to bill, the whip report. We are able to do revenue by client or matter. And then QuickBooks, once you start doing all the banking and everything, the whole part of the accounting in QuickBooks Online Advanced, we have the performance center. So we're able to track data points like KPIs and really track benchmarks, industry benchmarks, current ratio, gross profit, net profit margin. All of these are inside of the program, things you probably don't even think about when you're doing it on a spreadsheet. So we also have custom fields. With custom fields, I can take a client that may be in an immigration firm and specialize and put specific data points that they want to track right inside QuickBooks. I'm able to do the same thing with maybe an estate planning lawyer. Maybe they need to track something like date of the initial trust. Those are the key points I can put inside and track them with reporting. And it's it's really makes it a game changer, in my opinion. To save time, increase profitability, and improve accuracy to accomplish some of the things we've talked about today, visit quickbooks.com slash lawyerist and go ahead and book a product tour. Hi, I'm Dr. Oren Davis. I have the first doctorate in positive organizational psychology. I'm a self-actualization engineer and HR consultant, uh, professor of creativity, psychology, business, entrepreneurship. I help companies do better hiring, uh, develop their diversity, equity, and inclusion, and employee engagement. Awesome. There's so many things we could dive into there, but let's kick off with perhaps what you said first. Can you describe what positive psychology is? Sure. Positive psychology is the science of human flourishing. We basically focus on the research that enables people just to go beyond their regular lives into the lives that they really want to be living, into their best lives, or into, let's say, self-actualization, self-transcendence, and doing as well as they can. I love that. So what do you think is the biggest challenge that people are facing as it relates to positive psychology right now? You know, we're recording this in fall 2020. It's been a very bizarre year. Have you seen any trends or things that you think are unique about the fact that we're in the pandemic? Or is it just sort of exacerbating some of the existing issues? I think the pandemic is mostly exacerbating the issues that exist. I mean, obviously, it is providing some new challenges for people, especially in terms of daily living, in terms of employment, in terms of, you know, dealing with uh, rule conflict is a big one, actually. Uh, The fact that people are now having the rules collapse and being able to separate out the different roles that we play in our lives, let's say, work, family, friends, volunteer these are now all collapsing into the same place and time, and they're now overlapping in new ways, and that's getting in people's ways a lot, and that's, that's a new challenge. But, I mean, many of the fundamental issues, things about, let's say, our lack of self-knowledge, our overextended lives, too much stress, too much digital, and not enough self-care, things along those lines, the, those issues have been here before the pandemic, and now they're worse. Mm. Yeah. How do you, you know, start being mindful and taking that time away from work when it feels like work home and for anyone who's a parent school, those are all blending into one place right now. How do you sort of start to break that out and carve out time for yourself? 
So it's actually just extremely difficult. And that's one of the first things that we need to accept is that that's a lot harder than it sounds. And I think that, you know, any advice that I could give on that is going to be limited in its scope because a lot of that will depend on the space that you have, the constraints that are there, who you have with you, uh, what kinds of demands that family, work, and so on have. What I would say is it is very important for people to do that as much as they reasonably can to you know satisfy their needs on that. And then more importantly is to be self-compassionate when we're not necessarily hitting all the marks that we want to on our lives. And I think that you know developing that self-compassion is is a lot more important here because I think across the board what I've seen is that people just can't check off all the things that they've been wanting to check off. They're expecting too much of themselves, and they're not really forgiving themselves or being compassionate relative to the context when they're not being the person they want to be or getting the achievements that they want to get. And I think that's that's really where we should be focusing. Instead of how do we get that time, it's how can we be compassionate towards ourselves? How can we be forgiving and understanding of both ourselves and one another when we're not quite fulfilling the rules we were hoping. Yeah, when you're feeling like you are behind or you haven't been able to do the things that you had intentions for this year, another way that I hear that coming up, not just around the compassion for yourself with self-care, but I also hear a lot of people saying they're feeling like they're not as productive anymore. But then sometimes when I have these conversations one-on-one, they rattle off a list of things that they have done and it seems like they're pretty productive to me. What would you define as, you know, really being productive? And I know that's a really broad question, but most of our audience, um, that they're attorneys, they run their own law firm. And so they do kind of handle cases and client service, but also run the business as well. Do you have any advice on recalibrating what it means to be productive? So I think you need to respect the fact that there are only so many hours in the day and that the number of obligations that you have is now much larger because of this pandemic. And so if you want to really get it out, put forth all the obligations that you have, lay them out, look at them, see how long they actually take. You know, a lot of lawyers, they bill hourly. So really take a look at your hours and what these things demand. What you're probably going to figure out is if you try to get everything done that you need to get done, it's going to take you more than 24 hours in a day to get all that done. So you're going to have to start crossing things out. Um, A couple of things that are important. And, you know, they always say the number one productivity hack is getting a full night's sleep. And, uh, Parents, lawyers, I'm sure, and anybody who's both, I'm sure, is cracking up right about now. They've probably forgotten what the words full night's sleep actually means. But I'm going to say it anyway, that a full night's sleep really is the best productivity hack. We're a lot more productive. The difference between, let's say, getting six hours of sleep versus getting seven and a half or eight is very significant. Um, Especially track it over a few days. You'll see what I mean. So give yourself more time to sleep. Even if you think you're going to get less done, you'll get more done. Uh, Another thing to do is perhaps to bring on more assistance. And there are lots of people that are, you know, currently looking for work that may be able to assist you with things. And some of that is buying back your time, which is a rather important concept also. So even even if you're a solo practitioner, there may be ways to do that. And funnily enough, I actually used to work for a lawyer, may rest in peace. And I was his assistant. I did a lot of his uh, clerical work, and that saved him a lot of hours in his day. So Look for those uh, different hacks. And I think that's another area where you have a great deal of expertise is in the leadership and the hiring and bringing the right people onto your team. And so what is the role that work identity plays in hiring the right people to work with you when you realize, you know what, I do really need to outsource and delegate here? So some of that is really knowing yourself. You really have to know who you are, 
what you're about, and which things really, truly, honestly do need your touch and which don't. And some of that is really clarifying your personal brand, because that personal brand is really, those are the things that you need to touch that are going to have your specific spin. And then there's a whole bunch of other things where it's like, as long as you just give it a quick touch, it'll be fine, but you don't have to do the whole thing. And that really does require a a lot of uh, honest uh, calculation and a lot of honest looks in the mirror and maybe a few discussions here and there. And that's a bit of a time investment. So people are going to struggle to put in that time investment, but it is absolutely worth it when you can create the ability to delegate. And part of that is people think that they can't necessarily trust an assistant right away. Trust is built slowly, and that's true. So onboard your assistant slowly. Onboard anybody that you're delegating to uh, slowly. Give them opportunities to build trust. Think about how they could build trust with you. What does it take to build trust with you? And then you can actually walk them through those steps and see how they do and then increase the responsibilities so that you're buying back your time. But then you're also giving yourself the opportunity to put your best touches where they matter. You seem to be a fan of doing reference checks when you're hiring someone, Mm -hmm. but doing it the right way is extremely important. So when you're conducting a reference check, what are you really looking for when you're asking questions of that person? What are we reading between the lines to try to understand about whether this matches up with the way that the applicant has really presented themselves? So there's a couple of things. One of them is you have to understand that reference checks are generally meant to be positive. So you're not really looking for the negatives. The first thing to understand about reference checkers, you're not looking for the dirt. You're not looking to gatekeep. You're really looking for fit, making sure that this person is going to be able to thrive working with you. So once again, the self-knowledge is really important because knowing how you operate, how you work, you're basically asking the references based on what you know of this person, are they going to be good to work with me? And you know, can they thrive in the environment that I, in my style, my work style, my leadership style, are they going to thrive, you know, working with me, under me, uh, for me, near me, next to me, you know, whatever it is, getting that sense of what the person's like in their work environment. And also part of that is you're trying to get a sense of the context in which the other person works so that you can see what they're like in context instead of just, you know, getting their resume, you're getting the resume and the context. And that's also very helpful to understand whether they're going to work in the environment that you're providing. And I feel like some of those traits that really jump out to you as either positive with the applicant or potentially negative, some things you have concerns about, you're probably looking for where there may be that disconnect between your perception of things and kind of the way the employee put themselves forward and then the way that that person actually operates in practice in the job. Is that right? Yes. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to being a leader, it's not just all about delegating and outsourcing, but one of the ideas that you mentioned in one of your articles is you talked about a quote from another speaker saying that leadership was overglorified. I felt this made a really interesting point because not everyone wants to or should be a leader. So can you help explain a little more some of the traits that might indicate that for you, it's actually okay for you to step back from being a leader and maybe somebody else needs to step into that role? So I think a lot of it is about how much risk you want to take. And that, I think, is the big one because leaders, they take the most risk, they take the most responsibility. And uh, it's funny, an old teacher of mine had a a sign-up that said, I have a very responsible position. Whatever happens, I'm responsible. (laughs) And that holds most 
for leaders because they're going to be held responsible for all the things that the people under them do. And it's the ability to, you know, interface with the public or interface with all the stakeholders of the company. And that's, that's actually a real challenge. Not everybody wants to interface with all the stakeholders. Not everybody wants to deal with the politics. Not everybody wants to take the risks. And not everybody wants to be holding the bag, especially if they're holding the bag for things that they may have had no control over or they may not have been able to delegate or, you know, somebody else screwed up, but they're going to take the blame. Leaders get two things, the bag of blame, but also the bag of credit. A lot of people think only about the bag of credit and that, you know, credit rises to the leadership, but so does the blame. But oddly enough, a good leader actually sends the credit back down. Like when, a, when credit rises up to the leader, the leader sends the credit back down, but does not send the blame back down as much as possible. But that is a rough gig. So you get the credit, but you also hold the blame and you have to hold the responsibility. If that's not something you're up for, if you're not up for the politics, those sorts of things, leadership's not for you. And that's not a bad thing because one of the most important things that leaders need is good people backing them up. If you don't have good people behind you, and you don't have good people that can actually get done the mechanics, it doesn't matter how good of a leader you are. So those people who are not the leader are extremely valuable. They're fundamental, foundational, very much uh, hugely important people, even though they're not the leader. So not everyone is necessarily meant to be a leader, and that's not always a bad thing. We're going to pause to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll keep talking a little bit about hiring the right people. Supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander. Your team can do more with the same resources. Less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency will have your team feeling like they've hopped off a bicycle and into a Ferrari. Keep the team consistent, accurate, and current so you can work faster and smarter with Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Create powerful snippets to save you time so that all you type is a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest for you. Keep your whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist podcast listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay, as the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice. LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. 
Okay, so one of the things that we were kind of diving into a little bit with the last question is making sure that you've positioned yourself in the right role within the company, whether that's in the leader role or some other position. But when it comes to hiring, can you talk a little bit about what role, if any, talent plays? I mean, this is something that we've experienced even hiring here at Lawyerist. Sometimes you have someone who has a great deal of passion and maybe they don't have the direct experience, but they might have that raw talent. And there's a great connection here with diversity and inclusion and how we really start to think about that as people who are hiring and growing businesses. So can you chat a little bit about where talent fits into that picture? So a lot of that depends upon how you're defining talent. And in a lot of cases, what we're doing, and quite incorrectly, might I add, what we're doing is we're looking at a whole bunch of proxies for talent that don't actually represent talent. And that's often, you know, that leads to a number of problems with diversity as well. But rather, we need to think about talent, not just as what you're capable of doing right now, but really what you're capable of learning, because there's always a lot of learning on the job, and looking at the ability of somebody to do a certain amount now and to grow with the position later. But the fact of the matter is that talent is only one piece of the equation. I think we overemphasize that one too, because the fact of the matter is almost anybody that's motivated to learn is going to. We often want to bring in the ready-made candidate, somebody who can just slip right in seamlessly. And as lovely of an idea as that is, that's extremely hard to pull off. And mostly when you do, You've gotten lucky. Can you chat a little bit, if you're the person who is in the applying or trying to be hired role, and you know that maybe not everyone is approaching this conversation around talent the right way, are there ways to overcome that or showcase yourself, you know, be be honest about the fact that maybe the company's perception of talent or what they're looking for doesn't necessarily line up with what you're presenting, but that you have some of those other qualities that would make you be a good candidate. How do you set yourself apart when maybe it feels like the deck is stacked against you? Depending upon how their hiring process is happening, I hate to say it, but you don't. Okay, that's a, that's equally valuable advice. And why would you say that? Because in a lot of places, uh, companies are not interested in anything that's outside their perspective. They say they are, but they generally don't have the time or the effort or the energy or the resources to actually back up that claim. And therein lies the problem, right? When most hiring endeavors are based on expediency. They're trying to get the best hire possible with a minimal resource outlay, time, money, energy, and so on. And so that prevents them from looking outside whatever box they drew. So if you see that a company has drawn a very narrow box, odds are good that this is not the right place to work for if you're not in that box. And that's something that you should be looking for. Look for the box and recognize that it's unlikely they're going to be thinking um, anywhere beyond it. They're not transcending the box. They're not getting rid of that box because that's the box around the limits of their time, money, and energy for looking. And as hiring managers, it feels like that's equally important to consider as well. What systems or things that you're using in the hiring process are just going back to a by default process of this is what we want. It's in the box. And how is that being perceived by your applicants? It feels like there's a lot of room for changes here that can be made by hiring managers and companies that are looking to grow. We can't have that conversation without talking about how to attract diverse and inclusive candidates. Do you have suggestions around how we do that in 2020? Sure. The first thing is widen your box. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Because when you're a box of talent, when you're saying that the candidate needs to look a certain way, there's a double entendre to that. And if you're saying in any capacity that the candidate needs to look a certain way on a resume, that means that you've got a vision of a candidate and you need to start questioning the assumptions underlying that. But the first thing you really have to do is you need to put in the resources to back the claim that you want a more diverse applicant pool. And that means put in the time, put in the money, and put in the effort to go beyond the box. Widen the box, widen your sense of what talented means or what talented looks like. It's not just a checkbox of, you know, skills, you know, can do this, can do that, um, or rather has done this, has done that, and turn it into can learn to do this, can learn to do that, and can demonstrate their ability to learn and to grow. And a lot of that means, you know, looking much more deeply in what candidates are offering. It also means advertising more widely, looking more widely and building the relationship uh, with, let's say, for example, schools or with professional associations that get you a wider array of candidates. Uh, you may think about location and offering relocation, uh, virtual opportunities. These things all take the position out of the box as well. And that's one other thing to think about is it's not just the candidate. The box is also defined by the position. What exactly is the job? And diversity is as much about your process for looking at candidates as it is about your job design. You have to design the job to make it flexible enough that you can be flexible in your search for candidates. And you've got to be able to, once again, put in the resources to back that flexibility. It's going to, it's going to be a more resource intensive endeavor. Mm -hmm. And some of that probably involves the very first step of going back and looking at all of the processes and the templates that you already use, right? I mean, you probably, you don't just look at the job itself or where you're posting the job. It's probably important to do an audit of all of the things in your hiring process. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, you got to do that audit. But sometimes I just tell companies just for jollies, scrap it all and see what would happen if you could just redesign the job. Because sometimes in an audit, those old pieces anchor us to what used to be, and they anchor us to the old thing. We've got to look past that now, right? No law firm is hiring just a lawyer, right? Nobody's hiring just a lawyer. You're hiring a lawyer for a purpose, or you've got specific tasks or goals that you need completed. It's more important to think much more widely about what do you need this person to be able to do? And think about that more in terms of skills or even more important, meta skills. What do they have the ability to learn how to do? What skills do they have the ability to acquire readily and easily? And I mean, for lawyers specifically, for example, if you're, if you're looking at you know, hiring lawyers, let's say straight out of law school, it's, they're often very inexperienced in terms of you know, knowing how to actually practice law. They know mostly the theory. They know how to do some research. So what path do you want them to be on? What do you want them to learn? What's going to be the growth and development track? And then you want to find people that can plug into that growth and development track, knowing that, you know, many graduates of many law schools have very, very, very similar skills. So when you're widening the box, or in some cases, breaking the box entirely and starting fresh, as the hiring manager or the leader of the firm, what are we looking for in the resume or in those initial interviews to tell that this is the type of person that really belongs on that growth development track? How do we know they have some of those core skills that they really just need the mentoring and to be plugged into the right professional development and environment? 
I suppose it's a silly question, but why are you looking at the resume? You advocate for trashing the resume altogether or just using that as like a first pass? Actually, I, I don't like using resumes as a first pass. I actually advocate using resumes much later on and mostly to use resumes for experiences. But something to keep in mind is that you want to make sure, first of all, that the person that you're bringing on has the right skills. If you're certain that they've got the right skills and the certain basic skills, because you're going to bring them on, they got to do a job. So, you know, and even, even starting from day one, day two, like right after the orientation, whatever it is, they got to be able to get certain pieces of work done. So you want to make sure that that's there. And that's your first pass always. And as much as possible, you want to anonymize those first passes. And um, I'm generally an advocate of skill testing. So, for example, if you're a law firm looking to hire some new lawyers, for example, Quick skill test. I'm talking like 60 minutes maximum. Give a task, something that they can do that would differentiate in your mind what is the definition of doing that task well versus doing that task poorly. And put the task out there and let the task differentiate your candidates first. And I mean, again, do that completely anonymously so that you don't know anything about the candidates, just how well they did this job. You can put a time limit because, again, you don't want to overwork people. Or something along those lines, shorter tasks are better if you can manage to use them to differentiate. But do that first. Find out if they can do the kind of job that you want them to do. And they'll bring their character and their unique experiences into that you know, quick task. And then from there, what you're looking at in resumes is what makes them interesting. You're not looking for their experience. You know, they've got the experiences probably for, for the role or they wouldn't be applying, at least nominally. What you're looking for is what makes them interesting, what makes them different, what is going to make them unique or help them be a unique contributor to the firm. And that could be that from that, you're looking for things like experiences, perspectives. Those are going to be things often more like uh, club experiences or unique work experiences, something that's a little bit uh, different that helps the candidate stand out. And if you've done something like that, that's something really to emphasize because you don't want to be in the random pile of all those folks who managed to get a JD, pass the bar, et cetera. You're more than that. And by the way, candidates, see yourselves as more than that. You are more than that. And you're not begging for a job. You're here to give an exchange. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me a little bit more through this process? So I love this idea. We've tried to ditch cover letters here at Lawyerist, but we haven't gone so far as to ditch the resume in the hiring process. So this first step is kind of the skills test, the way to check whether or not this person has the basic ability to do some of the core tasks of the job. Is there something between there and the interview or the resume, something else that we need to be doing, both to make sure we're attracting the right person, but also to make sure that we're keeping an open and and very wide pool of diverse candidates. Actually, yeah. Funnily enough, I would have disagreed with you on what you removed. Oh, I really? think cover letters are better than resumes. And I, I have to add the addendum that most people don't know how to write cover letters and most people don't know how to read cover letters. So what I actually advocate is just the cover letter altogether and ask her one very simple question. Why do you want to work here? Oh, okay. 250 words max. Why do you want to work here? And I can tell you that that is an amazing, amazing differentiator of candidates. You'll find out who knows your firm, who feels to fit with your firm, and so on. And uh, similarly, if you need a second question, is write your own ticket for this job. Like, you know, you've seen the job description. You've seen, you know, what, what we're asking for, what we're offering. Write your own ticket for this job. Show us your vision for this job. Again, 250 words. How, how do you plan to fulfill it? 
Once again, those two questions turn out to be incredibly good at differentiating candidates. You're blowing up the hiring process here, but I think it's a good thing (laughs) because I, I think you're right. You know, the reason that the cover letter doesn't make sense the way it is today is because it's a template, right? You can Google cover letter template. People plug in a little bit of information about themselves. It's boring and doesn't showcase anything about the applicant on their side. But on the hiring manager side, it doesn't really tell us anything. And it's so interesting, the question that you brought up, having them answer in 250 words or less. This was the question that in the retrospective of our most recent hiring round, you know, there were some people that I spoke to in the interviews and they made it through the initial screening and the first interview and they'd send in their video and their resume and all of that. And it still wasn't entirely clear why they wanted to work here. They wanted a remote job. Maybe they wanted to work in marketing, but it wasn't completely clear why this company. And we were able to see that in some other applicants who made an effort to bring that out early on. But I think that shows a lot of potential and weeds out a lot of different people. So this is just so fascinating that we we still want to keep that cover letter, but we're going to totally change what it looks like. And then we're going to have the skills test come before that. And so now that we've gotten that far, is there anything else in the process that people should consider implementing into their hiring process, really to make it modernized to 2020? So let me say it this way. Other than like doing the job design, you want to do the job design, redesign the job, think about skills, meta skills, um, think about how you know you've got a good candidate before you look at any applications whatsoever. Ask yourself, how do you know that you've got a good candidate? Write that down in advance. Uh, check it for biases. Um, compare it. Make sure that people can justify how they're going to evaluate candidates, even if it's subjective, just to get some notion of what people are all thinking. Then you give them the skill test. That's your first round. The second round is the why do you want to work here? What's your vision for the job? I mean, once you've gotten through that, you're probably down to tens of candidates anyway hopefully no more than 40 or 50 by now, but probably a lot less if you're doing this carefully. At that point, you know what? Feel free to look at the resumes. If you've been advertising widely and you've been intentional about making sure that a diverse population has access to your job description, um, if you've got unbiased sampling and you've got an unbiased method, or rather, of evaluating and looking at and having standards for the answers to these questions, At that point, you probably have got a diverse pool of candidates. So at that point, the resume is now just giving some extra dimension and some additional uniqueness to each of these people. So now you can sort of rank them along the lines of like, okay, so who's got unique things to contribute? That's an important question. Who looks like they fit the culture, but not just fit the culture, but add to our culture and help our culture grow and who do we see as having the potential to develop as an increasingly better lawyer in our firm and with our team? And at that point, you're selecting people, let's say, for some initial phone screens. I mean, here we're talking like 15, 30-minute chats. You know, you, you, you can divide them into tiers, go through your first tier. Usually, your first tier is about a third of the pile that you got left. And those 15 to 30-minute chats with each of those people, it's about 15 of them. And that's pretty quick. And then from there, you're probably picking, let's say, your top five uh, to actually bring in for an interview. But I I think, you know, if if you've gone through those five, and by the way, one other thing I want to add is along those lines, communicate to the candidates where they're at. That's fair. So, you know, if you're not in that set of top 15, 
just let the candidates know that they're not rejected necessarily yet, but they're not in your top tiers. That's okay. Let them move on. You move on. Odds are good, but not definitive that your top candidate's not in there anyway. So, you know, be communicative, be empathetic. People remember that. And it also helps you get references to your firm later on. Anyway, going back to those uh, top 15, let's say, you grab your top five, you know, five that are interesting to you. You bring those in for an interview. Again, in advance, think about what you want to find out from the interview. What is your idea of a good candidate? How would you know whether somebody rocked the interview? Plan that out before you do any so that everybody's on the same page about what everybody's looking for. And personally, I think you should tell the candidate the interview questions in advance. Really? And feel free to do that. Yeah, let them know. Let them know what you're looking for because one of my favorite stunts as an interviewer is I send the candidate everything I want to know, but then I don't ask any of the questions the way that they're listed. So if you prepared for the interview and you prepared the material and you prepared it as part of yourself, you know the answers to the questions, even if they're asked in a different way. Whereas if you memorize the answers to the questions, you're not going to hear any of them. And so you're going to be kind of in trouble and you're not going to be able to deliver on that. So that helps to create the genuine fit. And again, that's something you can plan out in advance. But, you know, people say, why should you let the candidates know? Because people have lots of different sides. People are complex. So you need to tell them which sides you want them to show. And you want to know, can they bring those sides to work? And for better or for worse, as much as we want to talk about bringing the whole authentic self to work, we don't do that. And I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure. My, my truth is still on this, but I'm not even sure that we should. So tell them what sides you want them to bring and see if you actually like that side. That's incredible advice because I can just imagine, you know, it's really hard when you do these interviews and you come away from the interview with a variety of different feelings that are all sort of mushed together. And it's really hard to sort out was what I liked about this person, the things that I should be looking for at this stage in the process and was what maybe made me question or feel a little bit concerned. Are those really things to be concerned about? Because if you don't have that sense ahead of time of this is what I'm looking for in the interview. This is what a great interview would look like. And this is how I would feel walking away from it because this person kind of hit all of these different points organically during their interview. It is so hard when you finish because maybe you liked the person, but maybe they didn't answer the question on skills as well as you had hoped. And so you're like, well, I kind of like them. I kind of want to move them along. But defining what that looks like before you even have the interview, both for the person going through the interview with the questions and also for yourself and your team to know what you're really looking for, you're really trying to dial in. I think that's very interesting advice and totally changes everything that is the way most people are doing hiring these days. <laughs> However, it rearranges things. Uh, and I think that that will help us get to a more diverse talent pool and much more diverse companies as we start to think beyond our boxes of what we think talent is like. All right. So widen and break the box and start with your hiring process, number one. Well, Oren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners go to learn a little bit more about you and your work? I run the Quality of Life Laboratory. That's www.qllab.org, qllab.org. And people can find me on Twitter at Davis, and on Medium also as Davis. And uh, I do pack uh, a whole lot of advice articles. As you mentioned, I, I do post this on my blog. So some of the general advice that I offer is listed on the blog, uh, including uh, how to do a 21st century hiring process, um, how to build sustainable diversity. And if you look in the articles, there's even a link to a diversity cheat sheet. Oh, awesome. Great resources. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Laura. 
The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.